Programming Throwdown, episode 83, Teaching Kids to Code. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. So, uh, something pretty interesting happened. I knocked over a, a bottle of Coke, and uh, Coke went absolutely everywhere. This was about a week ago. Um, completely ruined my keyboard that, uh, that I bought a long, long time ago. Um, and so I went on, on uh, Amazon. I found out the keyboards are way cheaper now. I bought a, a mechanical keyboard. Actually, I don't know. Like, I bought a mechanical keyboard way back, but either I just forgot or uh, um, I wasn't paying attention. But uh, basically, there's there's colors for the switches, and the color doesn't just mean... Because at first, it was like cherry red, and the keyboard's black. It didn't make any sense. But basically, the colors correspond to how the key feels. So if you have cherry red, that's the softest setting. Um, Basically, the softer the keyboard is, uh, kind of, at least in my opinion, the better it feels, but the less you're sort of, let's say, guaranteed to press the button. So, you know, if it's really hard and it makes a big kind of click sound, like I think the blue mechanical switch does this, it makes a big kind of click sound when you press. That, to me, is kind of annoying, but at least (laughs) it's like you know that you press that key. Like, there's no in-between. So I chose, I think there's brown, which is in the middle. I chose cherry red. Um, and I love it. I think it's great. I mean, I, I haven't had an issue. Actually, it took a little bit of getting used to. So, you know, in the beginning, like sometimes I wouldn't totally hit the key, but at this point now, like, you know, I, I haven't had any issues and I like the way it feels and it's a, it's a lot cheaper. So, um, so that's kind of what I'm, what I'm typing on right now. So I didn't know for a long time about, I guess they're called mechanical keyboards. I thought, you know, all mechan all keyboards are mechanical. But apparently, I was wrong, as always. Um, so most keyboards that aren't laptop... <laughs> First time ever on the show. Most most keyboards, not like laptop keyboards, but desktop keyboards are, I guess they call it like membrane switches or rubber That's domes. Right. So it's like a piece of rubber where the bottom of your key has a bit of metal and the PCB underneath has a bit of metal. And when you push down your key, the two pieces of metal touch. And that's what makes the click. And so they're kind of mushy. Uh, but, yeah, but the reason why they're not touching all the time is just you have this piece of rubber. And so when you're pushing, you're squishing the rubber. Yeah. And I never knew any different. And in fact, I don't think most people do until you go try one of these quote unquote mechanical keyboards where there's springs and plastic levers and whether or not there's clicking detents or just tactile bump detents. And as Jason said, there's like six or seven different colors and there's even a community where people open up the switches and change out the springs so like you can sh- this the weight of the key on your reds you could make it heavier but you really like the reds the slidiness of it and so you could change it to be slightly stiffer or slightly looser in addition to buying it a different color to like get it even more customized and then you can buy like lubricant to to, to sprinkle down in the key so that the keys slide differently uh, people mod, like take the reds stem, it's called, and the blues clicker or something. I don't know what combinations make sense and just really mod it up. So you can take it to the extreme. And then you can also, with the mechanical keyboards, it tends to be that you can change your key caps. So I didn't know about this either, but like my keyboard, the cap actually won't come off the key. And so you, the, the thing that has the writing on it, the letter or the number is attached to the keyboard. You can't pull it off. 
but on the fancier ones you can and you can buy replacement ones of varying crazy colors and there's even like a people probably know this, but there's like artistic keycaps where you can get like little sculpted superheroes or figure eights, Rubik's cubes, whatever, I guess, uh, wow. kinds of things you want. And they can become very expensive, like $7,500, $150 per key, per letter. Uh, what? No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's like an art collecting, like collectible things. Um, oh my gosh. But then in addition, you like can what, buy... 100 and 107 keys or something? <laughs> well, so that's the other thing is you can buy key sizes down from 40% keyboards, which is approximately 40 keys, to 60% to the normal, like, I think it's 110 keys is roughly a full-size okay. keyboard, or 10 keyless, which is you drop the numpad stuff off to the right, and you end up with about oh, okay. 70 or 80 keys or something. Okay, so, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, the, the sky's and, the and limit. some people who are really crazy oh, actually built their own keyboard. So this is the rabbit hole I went down. So I wanted a split <laughs> keyboard. So I want a keyboard where the left and right hand, you can adjust them. So people make fun of me at work uh, because... I don't have like a super weird keyboard by normal standards, but it's split. So I have it kind of far apart sometimes, like as much as like a foot apart. And then like when I eat lunch, for instance, I have my food in the middle and the keyboard on either side of my food, um, like on both sides. And so, so that's what I really like. And it prevents you from cheating. Like your right finger can't type on the left side because it's really far away. Um, Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So then I learned about this thing called the dactyl keyboard, D-A-C-T-Y-L. Uh, which turns out is like a 3D printed case for you to mount these mechanical switches in that you can just buy off the internet. Um, And then you hand wire the switches together with diodes uh, and into a microcontroller. Uh, In this case, uh, I used a variant of an Arduino, a very small Arduino, and you put one in each half. And then the left half talks to the right half over serial across a headphone cable, like a 3.5 millimeter cable. And then you plug the USB cable into the one on the right, and it uh, acts as a USB device to make your letters. Wait, why Why would you use a headphone cable and not uh, like something easier to program, like, like, I don't know, Ethernet or something? Well, well, so the headphone cable connects the two halves because it turns out your computer gets confused if you have two keyboards plugged in. Like, it doesn't oh, work well. So you only plug so you one computer. Own. Sorry, go ahead. You have to write your own protocol to get the Well, so there's an open source yourself. project that's pretty popular with DIY keyboard people called QMK um, that, oh, okay. that people use to do to do the, most of this programming. And then you specify a key map because the keyboard doesn't know what the letters are. <laughs> and you can literally arrange them in, not infinite, but very large variety of key combinations. And so you tell it which key corresponds to what letter. So you can do things like Colmac or Dvorak keyboards in addition to the normal QWERTY keys. You can also adjust uh, what the thumb, on this one there's thumb clusters. So the letters your thumb can type and like space and backspace are like on opposite sides on your thumbs. Another popular one is the ErgoDox is a keyboard that's similar to this. Uh, Anyway, so there's like, the amount of customization goes through the roof. Um, And it's actually a pretty big learning curve because there's also layers. So you can sort of, have a button that you push and all of the keys become that they do something else. Uh, and the whole keyboard, oh, you sort of raise up a sense. layer or lower a layer uh, and then you have modifiers. So like there's no arrow keys. So you might raise up a layer and then your arrow keys are on the, you know, WASD or uh, I don't know, UHJK. You just make it whatever you want. Uh, and so the amount of customization goes up and you have to get kind of used to it. Uh, so I, yeah, I built one of these and was using it for a while. 
but I couldn't get over the learning curve, so now it sits uh, unused. But interestingly enough, there's uh, if you look this up, the guy who made it made a video, and if you're into 3D printing, which we talked about a while, there's a thing called OpenSCAD, which is a way to generate the STL, which is sort of the, the watertight mesh, the triangles that you feed to a 3D printer to 3D print an object. You can describe that from primitives, um, sort of like if you've ever used, a, what was the name of One of some of the, like POV ray was it? One of the ray tracers where you yep. sort of describe a scene. It's, it's very yeah, much right. like that uh, in, so, in sort of this very simple programming language. Uh, so he didn't like that. So what he did was write enclosure a way to generate OpenSCAD, which then you run to generate the STLs and then you print. So you can actually like add rows or columns to the keyboard and the keyboard becomes sort of like programmatically defined. Wow. So wait, so you, you 3D printed the base of the keyboard. The case. Mm-hmm. You, you bought a bunch of like uh, key tops or keys, the I guess. Key caps. Yeah. And then you bought the uh, mechanical switches. Yes. And you soldered it all together. Yes, with like wires. Yeah. And so is this what you use every day? No, or, so or I like couldn't how, get over the learning curve of it. It was too it was too custom. Oh, I see. But but if you had made uh, one that was uh, like like so what was hard about it? So I don't know if you look at the pictures. So for this one it's that the things you would normally do kinda of like with your pinkies, like the backspace delete or whatever and then test like become on your thumbs. So like the shifts aren't with your pinkies, they become yeah. with your thumbs. Yeah, so for people who like are you know, are listening to this, which is almost everybody, <laughs> basically like imagine imagine, you know, if you took a keyboard and you kind of you kind of broke it into into like four pieces and there's there's a piece for each of your um what's the word for this? Um there's okay, there's a piece for each of your opposable thumbs. That's two pieces. And then there's a piece for each of your, the rest of your, of, of each of your hands, what's left over. So you have these four pieces and you have these like, you know, two kind of little squares for your opposable thumbs that kind of hang on to the other, to the rest of the, to the, to either side of the keyboard. Yeah. And I could imagine that's really hard to get used to. Yeah. So my friend has one of the ergo docs, which is the same thing as this, but basically like pushed down flat. So without the curviness. So if you took this whole thing yeah. and like flattened it down and that was pretty popular um, he has that one, and it took him probably like two solid weeks. And he was a much better typist than I am. I'm a terrible typist, actually. Um, is that the right word for that? Oh, well. And so he got... Terrible ty- It's got good alliteration. Yeah, there we go. Terrifically terrible typist Patrick was typing <laughs> terrifically terribly one day. Um, and yeah. that sounds like a typing test. Oh, I- <laughs> That's right. So it's like flying down, and it's called the ErgoDoc. So he got one of these keyboards. His was pre-made. Um, but, you know, he learned to type on it and it took him solid like two weeks to even become like passable at it. And then he was telling me the other day, he's like, yeah, I think I kind of just want to go back to using a normal keyboard. Like it's it's he still feels like he doesn't uh, he, he is not as comfortable to him. Like he still occasionally makes mistakes. Um, so I think it's oh, one of those things that either jives with you or it doesn't. But I don't know how you try it without trying it. Like you have to have it at your desk, commit to it, try to use it and then decide if you like it or not. And in this case. For me, the experience was fun and having built it, it worked, it was great, and I just didn't end up wanting to use it. Yeah, but I think if you, maybe if you built one that was a little bit more traditional, Standard, you yeah. could use it every day. So that's my new project. Would it ever be, would it ever be comfortable enough where you could use it every day? Oh, I think could so. Could it ever yeah, be yeah. comparable to? Yeah, yeah. People use the, okay. it's similar, I guess, idea that this Kinesis, 
there's this kinesis keyboard which has been oh yeah um there's a buddy at work who has that yeah i think it's pretty similar to that i think it's a similar idea strain yeah so this would be really cool like if you are a um you know developer um you could totally build your own keyboard with one of these like you know cheap 3d printers or you could um do the thing where you 3d print it and they mail it to you and uh, you could bring in your homemade keyboard and do all your development on that. That would be some serious street cred. I mean, that's basically, I think this guy has like a, a video where he talks about this. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, if you really need that, that, you know, promotion at work, you want to find out how to take it <laughs> to the next level. Jason's contention is this is like instant promotion material. I'm not sure I agree. Instant promotion guaranteed. Ooh. Your boss just walks by and he's like, uh, you know, turns to your person next to you. you know, hey, did you finish that report? Blah, blah, blah. And he walks by your desk. And he's like, have I given you that promotion yet? <laughs> I think this is how you move from being like, oh, I was a kid who was picked on in high school to like, oh, a lot of people at work are like me. Oh, nope, I'm back to being picked on again. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I'll have to tell you one day the time when I uh, sat in a tent at work where I installed a tent over my computer monitor. What? Nope. <laughs> we have to keep going. Okay, we'll have to... We'll have to- to do that next show that sounds bizarre um all right it was logical i promise all right the nebraska (laughs) problem so uh this is an article that's actually quite old from 2014 but the game the witness um which was written by oh why is his name uh, escaping me it it just escaped me oh jonathan blow thank you uh so it's not by him though that is the guy who who made the witness but he had like other people helping him this is by i i think it's one of the people who helped him out on it he worked on it I haven't dug quite into it. Casey Muratori. Um, But anyway, so uh, for some reason, this got linked a while ago and and I sort of kept it in my backlog and didn't lose all my bookmarks. And so uh, I had this (laughs) and he's going through uh, in this article, basically ways of putting down clumps of grass, which you're like, oh, Patrick, why do we care? Like this is a programming podcast and we're now how long into the podcast and we've not talked about programming. Um, So he's talking about uh, randomly choosing locations to put down grass and one of the things he points out which is it comes up again and again which is why i want to talk about this is that um randomness is actually pretty hard so both for reasons of like we're not going to get into and quantum physics and what is truly random and that most of the time what we call random is pseudo random i'm not talking about that i mean although those things are interesting and we'd love to talk about them um just from the fact that if you say he wanted to put down clumps of grass and if you just randomly, uniformly sample the space, pseudo-randomly sample the space, you end up with clumps in some areas and gaps in other areas, which actually, although might be truly random, looks bad. It doesn't look natural because grass doesn't end up being truly randomly distributed that way. And so you have some right. areas where it's dense and some areas where it's not. So now you yeah, need I mean, to... There's, do- there's a natural process where grass is spreading and dying, right? So what he, yes. And so what he's trying to do is, I don't know that he's per se seeking the biological defendable way of grass to be laid out in a field, but he's showing how to do random sampling with, what do you, is that called like Poisson distribution or something, where you're trying to like sample a set distance away from other plants. So you're more likely to spawn where in an area where there are no plants than in an area that with other sense. plants. Yeah. And, and then also you could add, increase the number of plants per area, like the density in total um but all of this store leads to gaps and he goes down to uh trying various methods and how to choose and and 
What he comes up with is goes on this deep dive and talks about how he, he acknowledges this is a deep dive, but it becomes this burning question in his mind. And what he kind of figures out is actually he doesn't want something truly random. What he finds out is that by choosing a pattern, which is complex enough, but is has certain properties, he can get what he wants, which is that when you're looking at it from sort of eye level out towards a horizon, he can get it where there's no gaps and that it's not clear that it's a pattern, um, but yet it is, and you can use less uh, features, less of these plants, and get the same effect. And all of that to say that he, his quote-unquote random sampling in the end is actually that he said he doesn't go, he's probably not gonna end up implementing it, but that was this, he called it staggered concentric intersections, where it just sort of like this pattern with certain properties allowed him to cover the space in a way that was uh, actually better than the truly just random distribution. Um, and this comes up and, and came up actually at work where we kind of ran into this, people were trying to test some stuff and they were using just truly random tests. But what they were turning out is they weren't getting sort of great coverage. And what they didn't want was a random sampling of the parameters. What you actually wanted was some sort of preset coverage so you could kind of guarantee that you covered as much as the input space as you can. So given that, hey, you're only gonna be able to run 100 tests, how do you pick the 100 tests so that you get the most coverage possible instead of having risks yeah, of sense. getting them clumped together. Yeah, that makes sense. So basically like uh, if um, if some input is almost always two or something like that, but it, it has a range of zero to 100, you don't want to waste a lot of time trying things that are way out there. Well, so yeah, and that would be like, like how if you have this grass that's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, so that would be like the reversing or the other way around is saying like, you know, hey, you want to make sure that this is well-behaved. You get different behavior across 0 to 100. But if you just pick 10 random samples, like, you're going to get giant gaps, most likely. Versus what you could do is sample, you know, if you have to sample 0 to 100, you could do 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. You know, and you could evenly space them and at least try to cover more of the area. And the size of the gaps you have is going to be smaller. And so there's a trade here. Without knowing what you're trying to solve, you can't say a priori, you know, hey, it's always better to random or it's no, somewhere in the middle. You want something that's random-ish, but what you don't want is probably truly random because truly random, you're going to end up with these gaps, these areas that aren't covered. That makes sense. Yeah, there's something like this in machine learning. I can't remember the term. Um, I, I mean, I think it's actually from statistics. It's called pseudo-random, but it's kind of overloading the term. But basically, it's a random number, but you um you take as a prior the past numbers and so there's a there's a penalty for being close to one of the past numbers and so it's it's like this biased random number generator where it's more likely to generate a number that's far away from all the numbers it's generated in the past yeah it's meant for like yeah like if you had say two dimensions it'll try to generate a point that's far away from the other points but then it'll make one random so it's like a combination of those two objectives yeah so anyways, interesting read and uh, random is hard. Yeah, there's lots of random. So if you want to implement pseudo random numbers, you could do that in PyTorch and PyTorch 1.0 came out um, uh, in the past, uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago. Um, but basically, you know, uh, TensorFlow is super, super popular. A lot of people are using TensorFlow and TensorFlow is great. Um, PyTorch, you know, learned a lot of lessons from TensorFlow. 
And uh, one of the things that PyTorch does really well is they have an immediate mode and then they have sort of a, a static mode. So the idea is, um, if you remember like, uh, you know, if you have compiled languages and interpreted languages, right? Compiled languages are generally faster because they can sort of look ahead, um, see sort of what's gonna happen uh, or, or you know, they can analyze the entire file, um, take their time to um, try to optimize it um, and do all of that before you run it versus an interpreted uh, you know, code. In theory, you could be kind of rewriting the code even as you're going along and things like that. So you don't have the same assumptions. Um, and so it's, it's in machine learning, you have sort of a similar concept where you have dynamic computation graphs or static computation graphs. And as you would expect, if you have a static computation graph, it's going to go much faster because, um, for example, if there's some intermediate result that you're not using, let's say you have, you know, Z equals X plus Y, but you're not printing Z or really doing anything with Z. You just, maybe you calculated it by accident or you deleted some other code that was using it. Um, it just will skip that line. It says, oh, I don't need Z. So boom, it's gone, right? Um, so that's, that's a pretty extreme example. But even if, you know, you're writing your code in a way where you're, you're using everything, uh, it's still much, much faster. It'll, it'll do all sorts of nice things there. Um, but there are times where you need the dynamic graph. So specifically, when you're trying to improve a model, like you're trying to have it train and, and learn and get better, that's when you typically need a dynamic graph because you have to sort of react. It's like, let's say the model is really good, so you just want to stop training, right? Or let's say at the beginning of training, you want to do something, and then over time, you want to like switch to something else, right? So that's why a dynamic graph is really useful. And also a dynamic graph is easier to debug because, you know, because it's dynamic, you can stop it at any time. Um, and so you can do all of that and then say, okay, now I'm, I'm good with this. I want to switch to the static graph and get the speed. Um, and so I think TensorFlow 3, I want to say, is going to have this as well. So, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, everyone's learning from each other. If you have like a huge project in TensorFlow, I probably wouldn't rewrite it. Um, but PyTorch is, is, is super nice. If you're starting from scratch, uh, you know, PyTorch would definitely be the way to go, at least right now. And, uh, you know, the 1.0 release came out, which really means that, you know, they have good documentation and all of that. So, so check it out. Switching gears completely, uh, don't have a good segue, is the Cosmic Ladder. So again, this is not really news, uh, but this was a very interesting thing for me, so I thought I'd share it, that um, somehow this came up, what were we talking about? Something, and I did some research and found out, uh, how do you tell how far away something is in space? So it turns oh, out like okay. a lot of people think they know, and most people don't. So uh, most engineers, well, most people probably don't care, to be fair. But most uh, yeah, actually, I have no idea. I mean, I guess you have to do it based on the movement, right? Yes. Okay. So this is what most engineers end up guessing is that I'll say what you're saying is parallax, which is if you know yeah. that the Earth is moving and you see how things are moving relative to each other, you can you know sort of use trigonometry roughly and tell how far away something is. Yeah. Right. Sure. But it turns out that only works uh, out to a kind of a certain distance. Because uh, other things are just, I mean, I, I think it's like roughly 10 to the 24 miles away or something. Like it, it basically breaks down, right? You end up with pr your noise and your measurement uh, is so big that you can't get useful information about how things, orders of magnitude further away 
end up still tiny in your computation. And so the oh, cosmic ladder is a term that uh, has a Wikipedia entry and everything. But the link I'll give here is by a person named Terry Tao. And they I have no idea their uh, pedigree as astronomers, as an astronomer, but they have a pretty cool presentation and PDF and PowerPoint slide about essentially climbing the ladder. How that, you, and it takes you through the history and sort of the techniques, uh, in a, at least it was straightforward to understand or make me think I understand how it works, uh, about how that you're able to measure things on Earth, figure out how far away the moon is, for instance. Well, first, how, how big is the Earth? Like, how did they even figure out how big the Earth was? Once you figure out how big the Earth is, you can make an estimate of how far away the moon is um, by sort of measuring various th various things. I won't recite because I'll mess them up. Um, then as you get better, like now we can tell how big the moon is because uh, we can use radar systems to measure like how far away it is and reference it to things on the ground. And, and we get better and we can see how the first initial guesses, how close or bad they were. Um, then to about uh, 100 light years away, you can use what Jason was sort of saying by like movement around the sun, you can use sort of parallax. But what do you use for things that are like 10 to the five light years away? Um, you have to f use various uh, fitting techniques to things which you believe have constantness. So if you imagine, uh, and I might mess these up. So as you start going far away, you sort of saying, hey, it is repeatable that when a, a supernova occurs, that a supernova has a set brightness. So if I observe this, and this isn't exactly true, I'm uh, waving my hands a lot. If I know a supernova has a set brightness, then if I see a supernova and I measure how bright it is, then I know how far away it is. And so by having, oh. a, having a predictive model of how two things, like how two binary dwarf stars uh, orbit each other, how fast that should happen. And then by measuring you know, how, how far apart they are, how big they are, I can tell how far away they are. Um, you can start to use periods of movement, these kinds of things to try to guess how far away things are. And he's essentially talking about how that once you can measure things a little further away, then you can use those things to measure the things further away. And you, you can sort of walk your way up the ladder. And to me, it was just like, whoa, I wow, that's so never cool. really thought about it. That like some of these phenomenon are predicted by current physics of occurring in a set way, like things will, certain stars will implode based on their mass and size, and therefore you can predict their brightness. And as we get better at understanding those predictions, then we can use them to sort of measure how far away they are. Wow, that's um, amazing. I don't, if you that, have, that reminds me, yeah, not, I hope this isn't like uh, totally off topic, but, but um, I think it's similar. You know how they measure... I always wondered how they measure the weight of really small things. Like, okay. for example, how do you measure the mass of a quark? Okay. Right? And it turns out it's actually similar. So they, um, you know, you can't obviously put a quark on a scale or anything like that. Um, but what you can do is you can see what happens when a quark runs into something. And so you can see what happens when it bumps into something bigger than it. Um, and then you can kind of see what happens when those things bump into something else, so on and so forth. And and, and you can walk the, that sort of ladder backwards from something that is you know just big enough where you can weigh it. And then looking at how, um, you know, the, the, the dynamics change when it collides into something smaller and you keep walking that ladder down until you get to a quark. And they actually use that 
that same technique as you described to measure the mass of a quark. Oh, okay. Yeah, very So cool, I probably did a terrible job. If there's any astronomers in the audience, I'm sorry. But I found this interesting. And it turns out I'm not claiming what I said was, you know, more great. You should go read about it. But yeah, so it was surprising to me how much I didn't know about how distances were measured. I guess like Jason was saying, I never thought about how you would measure the weight of a quark. Uh, but I guess yeah. it makes sense. I guess the mass, you measure it by bouncing it off other stuff and seeing how much it affects it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, people are probably groaning. Cool. <laughs> no, I thought that was, that was actually one of the better, more interesting news stories we've had. So mine is much more straightforward and practical. It's an article on how to develop a boilerplate REST API. And so I actually found this because I was trying to do this. And I've done this before. So I was really just looking for you know, a more recent version of this. Um, and I went through a few of them. I was actually really happy with this one. And basically, you know, I, I wanted to spin up a really simple website and I wanted it to, um, you know, just have a few calls. Pe- people would call it with a few different, you know, URLs and it would just spit back, um, you know, some JSON data. And so I wanted something very simple that that could do that. Um, it was going to talk to a database that, you know, had, had, had data from another program and I was really interested in that other program. So I want something quick, easy, low maintenance. And uh, whenever I need something like this, I always turn to Express.js. Um, I like it because it's uh, it's Node.js. It's it's pretty easy to use. If I want to access it from a browser and do some client side stuff, that's also going to be in JavaScript. So that's convenient. And um, um, you know, the biggest thing is I, I wanted it to be kind of ready to go. I basically wanted it to you know bootstrap this app uh, and get it to a point where I can. Just you know, create a URL handle, forget and post, and just put what I need in there and and launch it. Um, and this this website actually goes in good detail about um, you know there's a thing called um, uh, there's actually a binary called Express from the Express JS team, and um, you pass some commands, some switches to it, and it just builds a whole website from nothing. Um, and it, it talks about kind of what those switches do. Because if you set different ones, you're gonna your website's gonna look a little different. Um, so yeah, check that out. It's got it. It kind of covers everything in, in good detail. So time for book of the show. Book of the show. My book of the show is Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. Um, it's pretty cool. It, it it covers as it suggests the Enlightenment period, and it talks about how the um, it, it actually kind of frames the current day as a second enlightenment. So uh, I'm not going to go through the whole book. It's a pretty long book. Uh, I'm not going to spoil the ending, although it's it's a historical book. So <laughs> you're kind of living the ending. But um, uh, yeah, the idea is you had the Dark Ages. A lot of you know works of knowledge were lost. Um, they were either burned or they um, they the people carrying them fled um, out of Europe. And, uh, and then you talk about the Enlightenment, where you know, all of this knowledge was restored and um, you know, really people's perception changed. Actually, one of the things that I found really fascinating is they talk about um, the difference before and after the Enlightenment in terms of what people believed. So, for example, people believed before the Enlightenment that if you, let's say, killed someone with a knife and you brought that knife you know, later on, even years later, to the body or the grave of the person that the person would bleed. <laughs> so in other words, what? like like you kill someone with a knife 
And uh, uh, two weeks later, if you brought the knife to the person, to, to their corpse, the corpse would start bleeding. And that's how you could tell, you know, who is guilty, like who did it, um, like spontaneously bleed. And that was just one thing. But basically, you know, people, I mean, they believed alchemy, right? That like you could turn metal to gold. It's Wait, just, but that's true. How. <laughs> I mean, it was supernova maybe or something. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, people believed just unbelievable things. I mean, we've all heard about like that, that maggots, you know, are created in meat, you know, like uh, yeah, yeah. things like that. Like, and just, he, he lists off all these things that people believed and they're all just, you know, ridiculous kind of superstition, right? They're just perversions of nature. And then he just says, you know, and in and 50 or 100 years later, all of that is gone. Like, like people just, you know, would look at you like you're crazy, like, like they would now if you, if you said any of these things. And just what an enormous transformation that was. And, um, and, and he's talk, he talks about basically how we've been going through just enormous transformations ever since. Uh, the Enlightenment, and um, I, I thought it was a fascinating book. I'm still about halfway through it. Um, the one thing I'll say is I don't think Steven Pinker is a good writer. So he has amazing TED Talks. I feel like his writing is quality is very poor, to be to be completely honest. Um, there's, I would say, in about 10 or 20% of the sentences, he puts a string of about 8 or 10 adjectives. Uh, and I'm not even kidding. It's like, you know, we thought that we were in the dark, gloomy, like desperate, blah, 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 era. But now we're in the blah, blah. And like so many adjectives. And it just, it was almost like just, I, it became kind of like a joke where I started counting all the adjectives. So yeah, you know, I, you have to sort of get past the writing in a sense, but the content I felt like was really fascinating. And um, uh, I, I would still, you know, even knowing that I would still read it again like if i if i wasn't already halfway through it my book will probably not enlighten you (laughs) is a fiction book (laughs) the bands of mourning uh which is a brandon sanderson novel who i recommend i feel like i'm on a i think he released a lot of books and i uh have been sort of catching up on them versus a lot of authors i am caught up on so i feel like his name gets brought up a bunch um i it's not that I, i i wish i had other stuff i've just been reading a lot of uh more parts of series and so since i like brandon sanderson so much and constantly try to tell people how they should read brandon sanderson books um i will say that i've this is the third book in the second trilogy of this sort of like part of his universe so book six or whatever um and i think there's one more in this trilogy which is set sort of at a later date from the first trilogy in this part um but it's a it's in the mistborn series and so uh, it's related to those books. Can't say a lot because it's the sixth book. So uh, sure. it will just spoil literally everything. So I can't talk about it. <laughs> um, but if you have not heard me say how amazing Brandon Sanderson is, Brandon Sanderson is amazing and go read his books. Uh, cool. Uh, the first Mistborn is good to start with. And uh, yeah, you. I don't know. If you want recommendations, I'm not on social media, but Jason can tell me people are asking. Um, but also, I mean, I think there's plenty of guides just like where to start Brandon Sanderson. I'm also reading the, the, his Stormlight Archives is another series he's writing. He's a very, you say like prolific, is that the right word? Yeah, I guess. Prolific writer. He writes a lot. Like he comes out with a lot of books, um, and like very big books. And I have no idea how other writers, which I won't name, seem to struggle 
like getting their series done or coming out with their next book. This guy just burns through them. I don't. I think maybe he, maybe it's just like a what do you call it? It's like a machine learned writer. Like he just it's just like a Markov <laughs> process, and he just like it's just randomly generating the sentences for him. But he's done. He's like the world's best trainer of a of a Markov process, and he's just like yeah. Yeah, I don't care. If it I is, I don't if, even care. I wonder if uh, it, what's actually happening is is he's he's got a team of people who really help him, and and he is at the you know he's orchestrating it, but other people are maybe filling in some of the thematic points or something. I don't. It know. could be. I mean, I don't think so. so. I was trying to think. Is I think we were talking about how oh I thought I knew how to measure how far away stars were. It turns out I didn't. Um, I think if I if you actually sit down and calculate. The amount of time it takes to write even a thousand page book, like just write the words if you worked on it each day for a few yeah, hours. Yeah, right. It's not that long. Um, I don't think. Uh, I oh, I thought you were going to say it's very no. long. No, I so think so it's to write a thousand page book. Um, how I, many words are on a page? Like roughly uh, what? 200, okay, we I think. do this on the air. I, I, I should have come prepared. So how it's, many? It's, well, let's say to write 200 words, I think it's going to take you. I, I feel like it would take a thousand hours. To write a thousand page book so it says uh, it's about 250 to 300 pages per word or per page uh, 250 words per page yeah so yeah i would say about about a thousand hours just to write it assuming like let's say you were just copying um you think from another book no. right like what's your words per minute when you type oh really bad i told you i'm a terrible typist <laughs> so let's say your words per minute is 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 uh 50 then that would be well five minutes. Yeah, that's not very. Yeah, okay. Copying would definitely be faster than that. Okay. Well, um, as, yeah. Whatever he writes really but, fast. I don't know how he does it. Yeah, I mean, it's that. Either way, it sounds remarkable that he can get that much done. So yeah, so about five minutes per page, about five thousand minutes. Is that right? About right? Yeah, five thousand minutes. So yeah. So you could knock it out in a few weeks if you're just. Copying. So my guess is it probably takes him like three, three-ish months, let's say, or whatever. You know, four-ish months to write it if you like write a good solid chunk every day and you know where you're going, and then he can do them in parallel. So if he has people like you point out, not help him write, but help them do the editing. Like he yeah, writes right. the rough cut and has a lot of good people to help him proofread and edit it. Then you could sort of do two or three books per year. I just think a lot of authors, you know, there's like they do book tours. It's like a whole process getting in a groove. You see this with musicians. Like I always think about this. Musicians come out with albums like once every couple years, yep. if that. But like it, how long does it really take to make an album? Like, I mean, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, it's basically it's it's basically two or three weeks to make the album. But then, you know, you're on tour playing the same song in every city for two years. But you're, I mean, you're on tour playing the same, but you're only doing that a couple hours a day, right? Or what's that? I said uh, you're only playing a couple hours a day for your concerts, though. Yeah, right. Yeah, the concerts, you're just, you're just reciting. You're not actually making music. Yeah. Uh, basically, I just don't understand, like, creative work, I guess. Yeah, it's mind-boggling that somebody can produce that much content. So, I mean, it Meanwhile, I, I, I write about... a few lines of code a day, and that's it. Maybe. Yeah, when I hear about these indie game developers who do everything themselves, like they do all the art, they write all the 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 the, the dialogue, they do everything themselves. Yeah. It just I, boggles my mind. I don't but I mean, they also take, you know, like, like uh, they also take a long time to, to make the, the game. That's true. But well, not always. always. You ever, the, what was, what's the name of that jam, the code jam? They do it like in a day. Oh yeah, Ludum Dare. And some of those games are pretty cool. 
I mean, they're not it's like triple A titles, but it's true. They have a good mechanic and then they can always kind of write the game around that. All right. If you want to read about uh, Brendan Sorensen, did I say that? Brandon right? Sanderson. Brandon Sanderson or Steven Pinker. You can do it on Audible. I actually listened to Enlightenment Now on Audible and I listened to a couple of other books. I wouldn't really put them as book of the show. Um, I was running a bit behind in the sense that um, I was accumulating some credits on Audible. And uh, so I got a couple of lighthearted books. And so uh, um, actually, I'll make a book of the show next time. But I got a couple of comedy books. I got a couple of serious books. And I've been really doubling down on the Audible. It's been a lot of fun. Nice. Yep. Yeah. If you don't want to support us on Audible, if you already have an Audible account or uh, you just want to find a different way to support the show, uh, we are on Patreon. Um, if you donate, I think it's as little as a dollar. I don't think they'll let you donate fractions of a dollar, but uh, no matter what you donate, you get all the benefits. So you get the RSS feed, which is much faster than the, than the default RSS feed, like the download rate is much higher. Um, and uh, you, know, you get to be in the raffle, which is coming up. So this this Christmas, uh, last Christmas, you know, we gave out, um, you know, laser printed programming throwdown logos um, and some T-shirts. This Christmas, we'll, we'll give out some more T-shirts and we'll have to figure out what we're going to do for um, for all the Patreon folks. We'll try and do something a little different this year. But uh, yeah, you'll get you'll get involved in that. You'll be raffled uh, in the raffle for a T-shirt um, and you'll definitely we'll try and get something to everybody. Um, so, yeah, check us out on Patreon. Time for and with that tools of the show. Tools of the show. My tool of the show is Quip. So Quip is pretty cool. If you've ever used a Google Doc um, and and you've done it in a collaborative way, where you and someone else are both writing in the same doc, um, then you've basically used Quip. So it's very similar. Um, the big thing about Quip is it's it's better for kind of, uh, let's say, group projects. So it has folders. Although I guess now Google Docs is a lot of the same features. Um, but, you know, Quip is very sort of compartmentalized. So you can have, you know, a whole Quip kind of group uh, for, let's say, you're working on a book or something like that with a, with a group of people. Um, you can all be in the, the same sort of Quip server and... Um, um, it kind of keeps things organized like that. You can you can share things. You can collaborate. Um, we use it at work. It's um, it's uh, it's actually really nice. And also, if you're doing anything sort of um, like private, you can actually host Quip. Like I think it costs money, but you can host Quip yourself. It's like you can you can buy a license and all of that. Um, if you don't want to use Google Docs for like your business or something like that. Um, but yeah, we've been you know I use it almost every day and it, uh, it works really well. What is uh, your tool of the show? Oh, my tool of the show is a game. Surprise. Don't do useful <laughs> work. It's Stardew Valley, which has been out for a while. And I think we may have even talked about it. I don't know that it's ever been the tool of the show, but we may have talked about it before. But it recently came out on, I believe, both iOS and Android. I always mean to look this up, and I forgot. Uh, so, yes, it is oh, both really? iOS no and way. Android. Uh-huh. Yeah. No so, way. iOS is out now. Out. Android is coming out, it says. Cool. So um, I've been playing this Android release date is... I'm going to scan this while we talk. Oh, uh, pop over, die, So, pop so over. yeah, basically Stardew Valley is actually one of these games that was created by just one person. Um, they did all the dialogue. They did all the art, everything. Um, 
but it took that person literally like I think seven years to make that game. Oh wow! Unbelievable level of effort. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so yeah. I, I can't tell if it's out or not on Android. Someone with an Android phone will have to check. But it is on the app store I've been playing on my iPad. I don't know how it would play on an iPhone. Um, but on an iPad, it's pretty good. It's one of those things where I always feel I'm just going to play it for a few more. Oh, there goes an hour. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the thing about Stardew Valley is um, well, basically just a recap is you, you're kind of like a farmer. Um, but some of the sort of ingredients, more advanced things, you have to go into dangerous places. So you're like a farmer and a soldier at the same time. Um, and the game can only save at night. So basically you do a bunch of things and then, and then during the day you get so tired from doing these things that you have to go to sleep or, or maybe you, you don't get that tired, but at nighttime you're forced to go to sleep. But then it's like, the moment the game saves is the moment when you have something to do. It's like, oh, now I have all this energy and the game just saved. Um, and it's like when you don't have any energy and you're really ready to like call it a night, that's when like you you can't really save. You have to wait until the night's over. So uh, anyways, I'm kind of messing this up. But basically the way they do the save really kind of keeps you playing. It's it, That's a great hook. Yeah, I mean, I think said another way, when you wake up first thing in the morning, it's a new day, but that means you need to do all the day's chores. Like you have to make sure all your plants are watered. You need to go take care of stuff. So when you have the most energy, you have the most things you need to do. And then by the end of the day, you run out of energy, but you can't get new one without ending the day and having to go spend your energy again. So you can try to cook yourself meals or do other things to restore your energy. But yeah, as Jason's pointing out, mostly you have a set number of things you need to do and then a bunch of the optional things and turns out it's kind of like real life. Uh, you have more things that you need or want to do during the day than you have energy to do or time to get done. Yeah, I mean, put it another way. I'll, I'll take it a second. Oh, here we go. It. We're going to just go around and around. <laughs> the most exciting part of the game happens right after you save. That's maybe the, a better way of okay. saying what I was yeah. trying to say right. earlier. So it's like as soon as you save, as soon as the game saves, you have all these things you need to do and they're all really fulfilling. It's like, oh, I have a plant that, that's ready for a harvest and I have a new like set of grapes or something like that. It's like the coolest stuff in the game is always right after you save. And so once you've done that cool stuff, then you're kind of stuck until <laughs> you don't want to waste the rest of the day. So you're stuck until it saves. And then right when it saves, there's something else cool to do. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I enjoy, uh, there's the new trend, which this isn't, this game has been out for a while, but it's just coming to mobile uh, or to iOS and Android. And I don't know how all those are mobile anymore. Anyways, but um, is that it's open world without being uh, no, too much to do. So there's always something simple you can do. There's enough story where it's trying to push you like, hey, go check this out or go check that out. The trend in open world games seems to be a lot like do anything you want. And then that just makes me not want to do anything at all. <laughs> yeah, that totally makes sense. Well, it's it's just directed enough. Cool. All right. So onto the topic. The topic is teaching kids to code. And um, this is, there's a lot going on here. Actually, we should start, we should preface this by saying, you know, why we could, why we're an authority on this. Or why would not. you even listen to us talk Don't. about this? So. <laughs> don't <laughs> what a, that's pretty nihilist nihilistic um thank you yeah so basically um so we have i think relatively different background maybe not that different so 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 your dad was also a coder yes right 
In my case, my dad was an engineer, wasn't really a coder, um, but my aunt was a software engineer. Um, so we definitely both kind of had it in the family in a sense. And, and we can talk about, um, I guess, how our family got us into coding, or at least how our family was part of that. Um, and then now we also have kids. Uh, your kids are probably too young to really do a lot of coding. I mean, mine definitely are. But do you do? Do your kids do any coding? No, no, so they don't do coding yet. My my older daughter has wanted to. She calls it like have computer lessons, but it turns oh, out okay. the thing that you at least I never think about is how much it requires reading. Uh, so yeah, so if your sense. kids can't actually like read at a significant level, it's pretty hard to get them to sort of do yep. some fundamental things on the computer. So like anytime there's an error message pop up, they don't know what it says. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so our kids are still too young, but um, we could talk about, I guess that's actually when it's most interesting, right? Because I mean, if 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 someone is like 18 or something, then it's, it's or that's a bad example. If someone's like, I don't know, 14, then maybe it's the same instructions as if they were 18, right? Yeah. But I mean, I do um, say that I think my kids have begun to engage on things where for me, like the teaching them to code is not so much about like, in a programming language, but I guess teaching them things which are, I guess I take for granted, but are not always immediately obvious to people, like describing a sequence of events unambiguously to be done. Uh, and so yeah, doing exercises where then where I'm kind of like, we're going to play a game and then trying to have them like, let's say what you want done, but then, oh wait, what you said was ambiguous and therefore can be executed in lots of ways or playing you know, playing board games or what if experiments with them and having them try to think like why something happened. And it's like, I know you could just try this or do this in this video game we're playing, but why not, what do you think will happen? Like, let's not just go mash the button until the door opens. Like, what thing do you think we could do that would open the door in this game? And trying to have them think about like sort of cause and effect um, when even we're yep. doing other tasks, because I think that's something that a lot of, gets missed which is a lot of stuff gets missed which is people just sort of bang their way through games or playing stuff until it works but trying to anticipate like if i do this action that thing's gonna happen and i guess it's almost about teaching a kid how to debug before teaching them to program um but i spend a lot yeah, of time totally doing that with sense. my kids yeah i mean i i uh i play um play a lot of board games with my with my son too and i think uh you know my parents also played a lot of board games with me we used to play monopoly and stuff like that and um you know, the, the interesting thing about board games is there are some things in board games you can control and there are some things you can't. And I think that, that as an adult, it's kind of obvious. But as a kid, I think that that's a really kind of important thing to learn. Like, like if you, you know, if your parents like always get bad roles on Monopoly and they'd end up with no properties and they lose, uh, like, you know, a lot of kids think their parents are kind of superheroes, right? So it's like where you where you see your parents fail, you kind of see like, oh, okay, that was kind of randomness. You know, my dad got go to jail three times in a row or something like that. And he's, you know, frustrated about it or whatever. And then he loses. It's like, okay, that was something you couldn't control. But, you know, not putting houses anywhere, you know, that caused me to lose. And I could have just put houses. You know what I mean? So like, like, as you said, the cause and effect and also more like the, the framing like understanding the the where you have sort of control and where things are happening outside of your control and being able to disambiguate those two, like pulling the signal from the noise. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, 
Um, you know, actually, we, we interviewed uh, Mark Ingelberg a while back, and he um, people should definitely check that, that interview out. It was fascinating. But he actually, um, you know, made several games and puzzles and things like that. <clears throat> and uh, so that's, I think that's a great way to get started is, um, is by checking out, uh, you know, board games. Like, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't really know of any, I'm sure they existed, but I didn't really know of any sort of educational board games. Um, we mostly just played, you know, Monopoly. We played Sorry. We played just, you know, I guess just adult board games. Uh, actually, I do remember playing Shoots and Ladders and things like that too. Um, but now, I mean, there's 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 games for kids, and, and to some extent, games for adults that are that are way better. <laughs> like they're they're better balanced. They like kind of teach you more. Um, and so, Think Fun, you know, is is uh, has put out some really fantastic games, and um, they're actually coming out with. Uh, I think a couple of new games. Um, I saw on their website they're coming out with Potato Pirates, which is a game for like seven and up, and they're coming out with some game called Hacker for ten and up. And uh, yeah, I haven't had a chance to really play those yet, or, or I don't think they're out yet. But uh, you know, there's educational games I think are really nice. So, so the the games that that Mark built and like this Robot Turtles and stuff. What it taught me is like when playing with my kids, the thing that's interesting is having them learn, which at first I didn't get, but when you say go left, they think about like, I'm viewing the board, the the thing is going to go to my left. And it's like, no, it's executing from some other point of view. So like, I'm moving this robot forward. So in robot, I mean, there's lots of things. Roughly, you're describing some sequence of actions you want it to take, like go straight, rotate left, go straight. And this, like when you're in an area and teachers, like teaching the kids that, the context in which something runs, which to me at first was like, oh, I don't, they're having struggles with this and this doesn't seem related to programming, but I've come around to actually thinking that programming is about putting yourself in the context of the code running, which is the things around you when you run matter a lot. So if I add one to a number when the number's 10, it becomes 11, not going from zero to one or whatever. You know, like understanding, keeping in mind what the current state is. And so like looking at visually at the board and saying, hey, the turtle is currently facing to the left. If I have it turn left, it's not going to go to my left. It's going to go down. Yep. And to me, it's yeah, like, oh, this is, this is obvious, right? Like, oh, this is easy. This is, but, but to a kid, like wrapping yourself up and I need to put myself in its shoes or into the context of where the program is at, where it's running. And then having a kid be able to walk back to where it went wrong is actually pretty useful. Uh, and as Jason pointed out, I mean, as far as like becoming an expert on it, I mean, TBD, we'll see, like, I don't know if it'll help yeah, my kids. Yeah. Cause I never played these kind of games growing up, but it is interesting to, to play them with the kids. So what did you do? Cause you, you, you if you didn't, if you weren't playing board games then then, uh, yeah, what are you doing? so slightly older than, than that. But I think once I was in later elementary and early middle school, we had programming books and compilers on my computer programming books around the house and compilers on the computer. Um, and so I taught myself sort of how to use QBasic by reading the book. And I like if I had got stuck or had a problem, I'd get my you know dad to help me or whatever, which, which he would to some extent. Although I guess now his mindset was probably like, I did this all day. I don't want to come home and do this with my kid. You know, like <laughs> I can't blame him. So we didn't do it for like hours upon end, but I would try to make rudimentary like drawing programs uh, in QBasic, like, oh, I'm going to make Pac-Man. And I would try to like make the little circle mouth open and close by sort of trying to 
figure out how, like, oh, I found some code for drawing a circle. Cool. Now I can like translate the circle. Like, how do I open the circle to like have the mouth like chomp? And I didn't know yeah. about sprites or like, like, so I would like try to find little math equations that would draw it on the board in various ways. And so I would start with that kind of stuff. Um, and then also eventually, like when I was in, I guess, high school, I learned C. That would have been like 10th and 11th grade. But when I was in middle school, mostly like goofing around like on QBasic and trying stuff in that and getting it to, you know, print funny messages out, make little goofy things. And in middle school, actually on my calculator, like I would always program, I guess it was some form of basic on the calculator. And oh I, yeah, TI basic. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I like TI basic and I would do, um, like wrote like a little RPG for myself where I would like, you know, randomly choose a number and attack monsters. And if you success you would get gold and if you like got attacked no you would way lose i did HP. exactly the same thing <laughs> i think the like text-based adventure is like just interesting enough without running into like becoming too complicated too fast where you have spaghetti code and you can't manage the sort of game state and so i think it makes a lot of sense and so yeah i would program and then the if you beat the final i think there was like 10 bad guys it would draw little animated fireworks on the screen by drawing random lane se line segments and connecting them <laughs> nice that's awesome yeah i mean i i have a somewhat similar story like um yeah as i said my my parents weren't like software engineers or anything like that so they couldn't really there wasn't really any resources like that but i did get a uh i got an atari 800 and it came with this program called Delta Drawing. That was basically turtle graphics. So you have a little arrow and you could, you know, draw forward, you could turn right, turn uh -huh. left. And it kind of taught me about like egocentric, um, you know, movement and all of that. And uh, the Delta Drawing book had a bunch of recipes. So I would just punch in like literally what it said and hit go and then I'd get a car or something like that. Like this amazing uh, drawing that like I could never make by myself, but if I just follow the recipe, you know, it would, it would make a car. And then also like when you messed up in the recipe, you know, you'd get like a car, but the wheel would be just totally in the wrong place. And so you could kind of look and see, oh, this is what I did wrong and this is how it affected the car, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I kind of uh, got really into Delta drawing and uh, doing a lot of that. Um, yeah, my aunt was, was a software engineer and she got me a computer and uh, kind of walked me through basic and things like that. I ended up, I don't think I did too much with basic. Um, oh, I made, a, I made a game that my cousins and I played where um, it was called arm wrestling. And basically you had to hit the space bar so many times per second, or maybe it was per 10 seconds or something. And every time you pass that threshold, so every 10 seconds you pass the threshold, you started winning. And if you did, th if you won three in a row, then you won the arm wrestling. And uh, we broke the space bar on the keyboard. <laughs> oh, <I was laughs> so, say, that's pretty cool. And then you broke Yeah, the and this was back like, you know, at the Atari where the keyboard was like, uh, basically you couldn't detach it or anything. So we basically broke the Atari with that game. Um and, uh, uh, you know, it ended up not being that big a deal, but it was, it was kind of goofy. But, yeah, I actually didn't get into coding until much, much later. Um, so, yeah, around, like, mid-high school, that's when uh, I took a course. I took the computer science course, and they taught us um, C. But, uh, yeah, there was a huge gap where I wasn't really doing any coding, but I was always really into board games and um, um, just 
yeah, I just played a ton of board games and did a lot of reading. Um, uh, you know, like like not reading, but uh, like like uh, puzzle books and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like at least between us is pretty similar, and I I actually think that's a common thing, which is there's a certain maturity of certain amount of breadth of skills you need to have before you can sit down and write. We've talked about this on the program, but like write computers. So like write computer programs. So if you say, I want to build a 3D graphics game, well, you're going to have to know like enough trigonometry and geometry to be able to do like 3D computation. That's pretty high bar actually. Yeah. Uh, And so like, that's really tough, but having a kid be introduced to like, late elementary middle school so i guess for people not in the states i'd be like you know 10 years old i think you can start to introduce kids into like what loops are and printing your name but i don't think they're going to engage at the level of building large amounts of software because i think it just takes focus now of course it could be an exception where like you probably don't need any help and you become like a contributor to linux kernel at like 10 sure yeah, there's always, like, savants. Yeah. yeah, but, I mean, I think for the most part, like, teaching a kid to code, I think, is about keeping them in that mindset of, like, like Jason was pointing out, breaking it, but trying to understand why it broke. If you just succeed by randomly trying, I don't find that, that doesn't seem like a good way to kind of progress. So, now, it's not that there aren't times when it's called for just, like, trying random things until it works. Like, I know there's an off-by-one error here somewhere, um, but for the most part, thinking through the code and anticipating what it's going to do seems to benefit me more. And I think as Jason was pointing out, those are skills you learn by playing board games, by, you know, doing, uh, you know, scientific pursuits and activities and even the scientific method to some extent, right? Like predicting what's going to happen yeah. trying to say, how would I test whether this is true or not? Um, I think having those kinds of approaches are actually enormously beneficial and so when you say uh, you know kind of teaching kids to program or teaching kids to code i actually think it's about not so much what language do you teach them but about these kind of underlying concepts getting into the intricacies of a type system is probably not super engaging to a nine-year-old yeah right yeah i mean i think another sort of uh like line to walk one thing i think where it gets kind of difficult is um, you you want to sort of help, but then you can't help too much. Yes. So it's like, like yeah, like sometimes it, you know uh, we had this this uh, this game where you just uh, build train tracks, and then you could put a train down, the train goes on the tracks, and uh, it's 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 a simple idea. It's just like you're dragging tracks and you're laying them down on these tiles. But the thing is, the tracks have to sort of line up, right? So I mean, if you have like if you wanted to, if you had a train that was going or a track that was going, let's say west to east, you couldn't just put a track that's going south to north. Like you have to have one of the curvy tracks. Like it has to be contiguous, right? And uh, we got this game like about a year or two ago. And so even my son was maybe like three and he just found it really frustrating. And, you know, if I just left it like to do it, he just would have given up. Um, but I stayed with him and like, you know, I made the tracks and things like that. And so he couldn't really make any mistakes um, because I felt like it was just it was just too far advanced. Um, but then now he just does it on his own totally. So it's like it's really hard to sort of strike mm-hmm. that balance between like you want them to make mistakes, but then you want you don't want them to like lose interest either or get really frustrated or whatever. That's I think with kids especially, it's like a very difficult line to walk. But uh, yeah, I mean, well, that's. I, th- I think that's true probably for anything 
but especially something like coding, if you want to get them to something kind of like that's pretty advanced, um, there, it's really hard to have this sort of those stepping stones. So stone. if you have a kid who you think is ready to actually learn a programming language and sit at a computer and type and learn, what would you do, what language would you use? Would you do a web something? Would you do Python, non-web, like interactive, like... Both of you and I described something that was, I mean, we're maybe a little predating the web, um, but this sort of interactive console graphics, getting used to how to deal with that, not console graphics, but just like a text input and and back and forth. Um, I mean, do you think that's the way to go? No, I mean, so I actually, now that I remember, yeah, I totally forgotten about this until just now, but there was something, I think it was called like hypertext or something like that, but basically... It was meant for presentations. Think of it as like basically PowerPoint, but there was sort of logic. So like in PowerPoint, you know, you can have animations, you press the button and, you know, you go to the next slide, but it actually just slides in some text and things like that. So this was like, Uh, you know, it was actually meant for giving really interesting kind of kiosk type presentations, like interactive presentations. Um, And so it had some very basic branching and things like that. Um, but the nice thing about it was it was all graphical. I mean, think of like just PowerPoint. Okay. Um, you're not writing any code or anything. And so I think something like that. So we actually have uh, something called a Kodi, K-O-D, K-O-D-I. And um, it has this graphical programming language where you just kind of drag and drop little modules and stitch them together. I feel like that's probably the best way to start. Mm. I probably wouldn't start by typing on the keyboard, especially nowadays with iPads and all of that. Sure. So I've tried these, like, there's some coding games, and I've had my kids play those on the iPad where you, you know, tell a person, write, write, jump, right? you know, and those are pretty good. And I know Apple made these yep. Swift Playgrounds, which I tried. I, oh, I, I thought they were kind of interesting. Um, but they're still a little premature for kids, but I think that's a, those seem really well done. And I think, actually, like, as goofy as it sounds, having something where there's graphical interaction and also, like, good documentation... <laughs> So it's yep. well thought through what's supposed to happen because a lot of times when I would do examples or coding questions, there's enough ambiguity where there's frustration about what you're supposed to do to progress forward. Yep. Yeah. I played one. Uh, my son and I played one on the iPad called Codable. And basically you're this little fuzzball and uh, it's it's basically like turtle graphics. So you say, you know, go right, go up, go right, go up. You have to kind of plan it all in advance. And then when you hit go, it executes that. And then you can kind of see like, oh, shoot, you know, I wasn't supposed to go up twice or whatever. Um, but yeah, those I think those games are really where it's at. I, I would probably stay away from, as Patrick said, like, you know, as soon as you get into real coding, you have to do a lot of reading. And um, even if you're, you know, even once you know, our kids could read, you know, at adult level and all that, it's still pretty taxing, you know, until you become a teenager it's probably pretty exhausting to read because you, you have to really think hard about it it's not like as unconscious as it is for you know, an adult and so a lot of these graphical things are really the way to go um, but I guess like the the high level here is is uh, um, <clears throat> is just to like get kids into logic so there's um, you know there's these board games um, you know that teach like strategy and all of that um, there's these apps there's visual programming languages, um, and they all kind of teach the basics around sort of logic, around understanding sort of cause and effect. You know, like, did you lose three times in a row, just randomness? Like, if you're playing shoots and ladders and you lose, you can't really say, oh, I wish I could have <laughs> done things differently. 
But even just knowing and understanding that the game is just complete random, that by in and of itself is is a good lesson. Like just understanding that you know you're following this process, but you have no control. It's really just about understanding the the game versus you know I don't know Monopoly or something where you have a lot of control, there's a lot of things you can do, and the things you do matter. I think that that getting kids to understand that is 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 really important. That makes sense. Yeah, I guess this wasn't so much a like strict curriculum on how to teach kids to code, but I'm not sure that one exists. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, and, and where we live, you know, we've talked about this. Patrick and I live in the valley, and um, you know, the, the the I don't know about you, but but we have so many of these coding camps in my neighborhood. Um, there's literally eight coding camps on this one street. So if I go, you know, a couple of blocks from my house. Uh, it puts me on this this pretty main road, and there's eight coding camps. And uh, I just don't, yeah, I think that's not the way to go. I mean, I, I think it's it's one of these things that uh, it's very it's a deceptive goal. Like if you start marching towards the goal, I don't think you actually get there. I think actually you could sort of stint it, stint the growth. Um, I feel like the coding really comes like after someone has already um, understood a lot more fundamental stuff. And, and of course, there's always savants who made their first app when they're 12 years old and things like that. Um, but I think in general, like, you know, jumping straight into Python or something like that might actually distract from the overall goal, which is really to build a foundation in like logic and causality. I think I agree. Yeah. So if anyone has any cool resources, so just to recap real quick, uh, you know, I think board games are really solid. Um I think there's a bunch of really cool apps. There's all sorts of visual programming languages. Just to list a few, I mean, there's Scratch, there's Logo. Um, there's a there's an app called Scratch Junior, which is like a limited version of Scratch. Um, but you know, you can find out if you look up visual programming languages for kids, you'll find a ton of these in in every possible conceivable OS. Um, and then you know, you want to balance between being frustrated and you know, just just giving away all the answers right so as a parent that's a that's a challenge as a guardian that's a challenge um but yeah i think that's that's basically the high level of it and, and don't just uh you know hand a five-year-old a c book because <laughs> that's not gonna work <laughs> well maybe do it one time to see if you have a savant and then yeah then don't yeah i mean if they ask you if they say hey you know this is pretty cool but i really want to learn assembly well then you know go for it <laughs> 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 yeah oh the other thing actually just to, just one other thing i thought of is you know i've been doing and i think you also fit this category we do a lot of robotic stuff and in general if you do anything related to coding or anything related to i don't know building anything yeah just find a way to get your kids involved we've been doing i've been doing a lot of robotics things and you know my son's doesn't have the attention span for it but what i did is uh i got a buddy of mine to do it too and so when there's two of us and two kids, then it's like, you know, the kids can kind of chase each other a bit or, you know, when they do pay attention, we're there um, and, and or we could take turns like I can keep the two kids from, you know, stepping on nails while, you know, my friend uh, does some work on the robot and we can switch. So, so that also worked out pretty well. Um, but yeah, did your dad ever get you involved in any of his side projects or anything like that? So my dad never really had side projects like that. But I mean, when we would do a science fair each year or whatever, I don't know if that's at all the thing, but we would have to do a science project and he would always get involved with us and doing those experiments and helping us. And 
Yeah, I guess we oh, did okay. do stuff sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, my dad, you know, did a lot. Of, he's a mechanical, you know, engineer. So he did a lot of mechanical stuff, and uh, he'd always have me like help him like set up pulleys and stuff like that in the house. Wait, set up pulleys in the house? That sounds. Like <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the garage, in the garage. Uh, but yeah, he literally had this whole pulley system, and uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, he would uh, he would be able to pull like boats. He had boats like just attached to the roof of the ceiling of the of the garage. So like you would just park the car under a huge boat, and there was this like crazy pulley system which gives you all this mechanical advantage. But you have to turn a winch like a, a hundred times to get this boat to go up, you know, four feet. <laughs> so he just had all these crazy things. That sounds and, pretty uh, cool, actually. Do you have yeah, pictures? It's, it's you guys seems like fun. you guys have pictures. Yeah, I gotta send you uh, right. a picture of my all dad's right. garage. I'll ask him to take a picture. We could put it on the blog. There you go. There you go. You can be famous. <laughs> internet famous. Internet points. That's right. Cool. Catch you later. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.